work ends with the setting sun. But how does the rest of that go? How the heck does the rest of that go? Let me see. Man's work ends with the setting sun. That's ridiculous. What do you mean? The sun is set and I'm still working? That's a silly thing. Let's try that again. Man's work ends with the setting sun, but woman's um, work, uh, something, 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 something. Something, something. Yeah, that's it. There's two more stanzas. Bring it up there. I don't remember it, but... Uh... Oh, yes, friends. <laughs> We're on the air now, aren't we? Yeah, well, George, why don't you guys light up a light in here and let me know here. We're on the air, of course, and uh, this is Uncle Wiggily. And uh, we've got all kinds of stories for you tonight. You climb up upon my knee, baby, and uh, I'll tell you how to cook red cabbage. <laughs> I'll tell you stories about what's going on out the bushes there. Tell you a little stories about Peter Rabbit. Peter Rabbit, of course, I knew him well. And uh, we'll tell you stories about uh, uh, Jack, uh, little Jack Horner. Yeah, little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating a pumpkin pie. I'll tell you that one too. So gather on, gang. It's time once again for the Whoopie Hour. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. You know, uh, that's true. Balaclava. Balaclava is a, a kind of a Turkish, a Danish, isn't it? Balaclava. And it's uh, it's made with uh, honey. It's very sweet. It makes your teeth uh, get hairy. It's balaclava. Yeah, it's nothing nothing like balaclava, a little Greek wine that tastes like turpentine to set you on. Balaclava. Kladapchonta. It's also the name of a tune that's often played on uh, balalaikas. Of course, as you go strolling through this life, you begin to see all kinds of things that perhaps you'd better not see. And so, would you please give me a little mood music for strolling through this veil of tears? I'm just a vagabond lover. No, no, baby. I'm just, just a, just an old vagabond lover, baby. a good moment in the last couple of days when this one guy in the French parliament challenged the other guy in the French parliament to a duel 
And uh, you heard about that, of course. You know, everybody, uh, everybody uh, has this myth going around these days that everybody underneath the skin is the same, you know, we're just all the same. How can you talk to a country uh, <laughs> on the same level that in the middle of their the big parliamentary debate or whatever it is, yes, yeah, the French Assembly, the Paris Assembly, one just says, oh, and the next thing you know, he says, I challenge you to the duel. And the other one gets up, and they do. And the next day, they're out there in the dawn. You heard about the end of it, didn't you? They got out there in the dawn, these two old you-know-whats. They got out there with their swords, and uh, the one said, I was prepared to be pistols. However, the sword is a noble weapon. And uh, they fought it out. Now, uh, this is one of the great moments already. 1967 has far surpassed 1966 in nuttiness. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember, Bob, the first day when 1966 came in, I said, you know, I'm looking forward to this new year. Now, you know, j just think of the unimaginable nuttinesses that we're going to see that we don't even know about, we couldn't even conceive of. And so the idea of two grown-up men, in fact, very grown-up men, of the French Assembly challenging each other to a dual public, and one of them was the mayor of Marseille, wasn't he? Yeah, it was the mayor of Marseille, St. Georges Pompadou. Premier Georges Pompidou was shouted down for several minutes in the National Assembly today as he refused to yield the floor while defending his government against opposition criticism. Feelings became so heated and the language so strong that Gaston Defrère, mayor of Marseille and one of the four leading figures of the left, was challenged to a duel by a Gaullist deputy. The Gaullist René Ribière asserted that Mr. Dufier had called him an idiot. You are the idiot. <laughs> and the next thing you know. Now, now we sit here, you know, we laugh at that. Can you imagine Mayor Lindsay, for example, challenging uh, Dean Rusk to a duel? It's kind, of, it's kind of silly, but it would be very interesting, wouldn't it? The two meet in Central Park. Now, of course, we're not, we're not swords type here in America. What would they use to fight? Well, 45s? You know, Western Colt types? <laughs> you know, the quick draw bit? Or, uh, oh, the, the Englishmen would love that. Europeans would love it. You know, because Europeans are really gassed about the American West. That they, oh, they really are. The Italians are making Westerns now, you know. The Yugoslavians are Oh, they love the West, the whole idea of the West. And just think, I think that this would make America all of a sudden beloved to the rest of the world. You know, we're having trouble with, a, you know, with all kinds of problems here uh, with the public relations and all that stuff. Can't you just imagine how it would be? The dawn's early light. The uh, French representative of uh, uh, Le Soir, uh, the French newspaper, is standing in the bushes in Central Park. And the two representatives of uh, the uh, Manchester Guardian are on hand, yeah, wearing their derbies, their bowler. Oh, they'd be there, of course, with their bumper shoots. The Observer would be on hand with Kenneth Tynan to write a review. Oh, the, the Times. Oh, the Times. Are you kidding? The, the Times would have seven men there, all in morning trousers, you know. After all, it's a duel, you know. Cutaway coats, the whole bit. The French would have about 45 guys with white gloves on hand, of course. And in the dawn's early light, these two carriages, painted black, arrive from opposite sides of the park. Can't you just see them coming down 66, or, you know, the opposite side? One comes to the east side. Of course, that's uh, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay comes from the east side, the silk stocking district, and he comes in this Cadillac, painted black, with uh, it would have to have, of course, it would have to have uh, uh, shades in it, you know, drawn. Drawn shades. And it would have to be a lady wearing a long 
black uh, veil, weeping copiously in the back seat. A mystery lady. <laughs> There'd be rumors, of course, why they, they, they know obviously it's not Lindsay's wife. It's a mystery lady since she's wearing this black veil, weeping copiously. Yes, wringing her hands. And there would be a small child, very pale, uh, wearing a, a straw sailor hat. <laughs> <You see? laughs> and this car would, would come down silently, of course, and there would be a grim-faced chauffeur who looks a little like Eric von Stroheim, wearing a black uniform and white gloves, and he's driving, and it's got an open front, you see, it would have to have an open front, so it's the limousine type, you know, with the closed rear, the Landau, uh, the open front, and there's a slight rain coming down, Shh. just a slight, it's dawn, it's ten minutes past five, and just a slight grayness is beginning to show over the tip of the Empire State Building, as Mayor Lindsay is meeting Dean Rusk in a duel to the you know, just to, to assuage the honor of these two great gentlemen, the car rolls quietly through the park. And hushed seconds stand in a small glade next to Sheep Meadow. There, where so many things have happened before in Sheep Meadow, one kind or another. This would cut anything that Holving ever did. And these cars slowly pull quiet. And Mayor Lindsay, impeccably dressed in striped morning trousers, a dove gray vest, on a solemn face, and he's wearing a tall silk hat, and he's got a cutaway coat with pearl buttons, and he's got dove gray gloves. He steps out silently from the car, and there's a hush that hangs over Sheep Meadow, and the representatives of the London Times edge forward discreetly, are carrying tiny silver pencils upon which they are discreetly writing notes in fool's cap, by the way, they don't write paper, you know, it's fool's cap. And then suddenly, the sound of another car approaching from the west side. Very discreet squeak of the brakes, and it pulls up, and the door swings open. And Dean Rusk steps out, wearing a black homburg. Of course, he's in the State Department, see? He's wearing a black homburg. And he's got a pearl, he's got a pearl-colored vest, embroidered. And he's, uh, as befits the State Department, it's a little shifting scene. He's got a pearl-colored vest embroidered, and he's got a cutaway coat, and he's got jet black trousers with a faint velvet, just the faintest of velvet stripes down the side, of dark midnight blue. And he's wearing patent leather dancing pumps. He steps out. And there you see in the back of his car, in the Landau with the drawn shades, you see a figure silently weeping drawn with a great black veil. It's LBJ. He's weeping. And then the two men step, and they step forward. And with nary a word, they shake hands solemnly, standing at four paces, shaking hands. And the seconds confer briefly, whispered confirmation. And then out from the rear of a third automobile, painted black, suitably black, not a trace of chrome on it is brought the weapons. A polished mahogany case is open. And there lay two western range model 44s. Big babies laying there, blue steel glinting in the glinting in the sunlight. That's just beginning to show over the east side. The French represents a voila. Voila. Yes, 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 western 44. That is a range model. Are we please make him of the range model? These men are men of the West. They are going to fight it out. This is the grand walk down. 
And uh, sure enough, the two forty fours are checked. The the barrels are spun, you know. The, the cylinders are spun, and in each one, in each empty chamber, is inserted a silver, brought especially this morning from Tiffany's, a silver forty four cartridge. Six. Now have your weapon, sir. Six. And since they are handed, but first. First to see Mr. Lindsay, since he is the challenger. And then to Mr. Rusk. He is defending his honor. As the instructions are given, the different ones will stand back to back. And at the count of three, you will take 20 steps forward. One, two, three, four, five, twenty steps forward. And then, upon command, you will make a, an about face and face each other. And then, then, you can fire at will. Good luck, gentlemen. La homme en hier. It's a man of honor. Already? Silence falls over sheep meadow. Off in the distance, the faint first honkings of the first angry cab driver can be heard going down Fifth Avenue in search of a hapless fare that he can browbeat. Are you ready? All right, gentlemen. One, two, three. Come to me for the marching silently. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. It's a brief moment. It is the honor of the entire Republic hangs in the balance. Mr. Lindsay turns. Mr. Rusk turns. And then the two gentlemen, staring through the soft gathering, the grayness of the morning dawn, face each other for the first time. There is a brief instant, and then... Pow! Mr. Rusk fires directly above his head. Pow! Lindsay fires above his head. They lower their weapons. A faint, acrid smell of powder burning can be smelled in the sheep meadow. And the duel of honor is over. And America has once again regained its status in the eyes of the world. The Frenchmen stand with eyes, with eyes filled with tears. The Englishman from the New York office of the London Times doff their doff their derbies and say we're good show good show by God this is America good show and once again we will be back in the family of nations back in the good old 18th century <laughs> speaking of uh, 18th century being a little loud this is WOR New York hit the button please or say D Street excuse me that's of Milwaukee Lana, are you there? You've been in France, haven't you? Of course, Father. Oh, that's a silly thing to ask. You've been in the Antarctic, of course. Ridiculous. Uh, you stayed at the Antarctic Hilton. Certainly. Uh, of course, Simon. Uh, oh, yes, uh, what, what are you pointing at, honey? Of course, I see that. I don't know, what, what's what you heard tonight? Got plenty of time. Oh, speaking of the poster. Oh, yes. Uh, we have just been notified, once again, that we've been... Uh, deluge with uh, about 64,922 letters from people asking where to get 
this uh, ridiculous poster that has my picture on it. Well, we don't sell them here. We don't have anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, our attorneys are already instituting suit. However, if you would like one of these ridiculous, fantastic posters with my picture... Did you see them, Bob? Scary, isn't it? I'll tell you, it really offended Ted Malley. It was terribly offended. And I don't blame him. Ted offends me. I mean, I don't blame him. However, uh, for those of you who uh, have been wondering... <laughs> what's the matter? <laughs> for those of you who have been wondering where you get these babies, you... Uh, just go into your local bookstore, wherever they sell these posters. You know, you've seen pictures of the posters of Marlon Brando and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, of course. And you just, uh, you just drop us a note. If, uh, gee, now you threw me all off. You couldn't have waited till better time, honey. Uh, what you do, and uh, what was I supposed to be doing, a poster commercial? Why don't we start it all over again, huh? Your timing is just getting better all the time. What you do is simply drop a note. Address it to Ogre here at WOR if you've been having trouble getting your posters in your neighborhood. You know, you, you buy them any place where they sell Marlon Brando pictures and, and uh, pictures of Allen Ginsberg. Gee, that's a beautiful picture of Ginsberg. Sir, of course, that isn't the real Ginsberg. That's his uncle. He used to run a fruit stand down on Delancey Street. And a little realizing that he was a little ahead of his time in the neighborhood. However, that's, uh, uh, if you would like a picture of this, uh, you know, this terrible poster of me, you just send your name and address to Ogre. That's O-G-R-E, and put in a dollar and a quarter in any kind of cash, money order, uh, anything that you sell around the house, dollar and a quarter, you send it to Ogre here at W-O-R, and we'll see that you get it. Okay? Oh, yes, one more note, too. Tomorrow night, of course, we're going to be at the limelight. And that's uh, going to be a wild thing. We always have a great time down there. Don't we, gang? And, uh, hey, listen, I had, I had a great, a, really a great moment regarding the limelight show. The other night, uh, I was up, it was actually the afternoon, uh, the other afternoon, I was up in White Plains, and I was doing a thing, there a lot of ladies there, and uh, they were walking around, you know, they had the flowered hats and the beaded bags and all that, very nice ladies, and uh, all of a sudden, out of the crowd of ladies broke this, this one genuine little old lady with these two little raisins for eyes, you know, she came popping out of the crowd, and she had a little knit shopping bag with her full of bones and stuff, and... Uh, she came up and she said, Mr. Sheridan. I said, yes. She said, don't tell anyone, but let me tell you, that limelight program you do, you know that one? I said, yes, expecting to get hit on the head with an umbrella. She said, that limelight program is a gas. I said, oh, thank you, madam. <laughs> well, this uh, friendly little old lady sits up in her room while her uh, nephews and her nieces and her her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, are sitting downstairs, mainlining Flipper, you know, sitting there watching Lassie. She's up in her room, mainlining the Limelight Show. So if uh, you have always uh, promised yourself that you'd like to come to the Limelight Show, there are no tickets necessary. You just call the Limelight for a reservation and or come on down Saturday night. Generally, there's always about three people or nine or maybe ten who don't make it from Teaneck and uh, have, a, have a reservation, and you can grab their seat. Uh, it's right in the heart of Sheridan Square on 7th Avenue. Right in the heart there. And we usually begin the show about five minutes past ten and continue to midnight. Now, if you can't make it, we'll be on the air, of course, broadcast. Now, you don't get much of what's actually happening down there by the actual broadcast. Incidentally, uh, there is a myth out that nobody under 21 can come to the limelight. I hear that all the time from people. This is not true. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, anybody under 21 can come to the limelight, and they're welcome. And in fact, they usually have a ball when they do come down there, under 21, providing you're with someone who is 21 or over. In other words, you can be 15 or 10 or even 5, and you can scratch up a big brother or somebody who's 21 or over. Man, make the scene, you know? There's no problem at all, okay? Apparently, there's been a lot of talk around about that, that you can't get in under 21. This is not true. You must be, however, and we repeat, you can be under 21, and there's no, no hang-up at all, but you must be with somebody who is 21 or over, okay? And be able to prove it. Now, a lot of people just prove it by, you know, having a mad look on their face, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which happens to people these days. You, you realize, of course, that if you're over 21 in this day of the juvenocracy, you're already a has-been. Yeah, of course you are, you know. Wait till the word gets out. Wait, wait, till the real, wait, wait till the truth gets out, you know. The Twiggy is 36. I mean, forget it, you know. Forget it. Uh, would you please uh, bring me uh, a little suitable uh, background music, please? Yes. We have no bananas. <laughs> We're doing this in courtesy to Bob there, who always refers to him as bananas. Yes, uh, sir. Oh, yeah. yes. We have no bananas. Mm. Oh, no. We have no bananas today. Because everybody on the village has been buying them. We've got onions. we got scallions. we got radishes and tomatoes. But no, sir, Bob, no. No, 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 no. we got to admit it. Yes. We have no bananas. Bring it up big there. All right, now we brought that up. Uh, sneak it down there and reset that. Uh, we've got the reason for telling this little story. Uh, very, very solemn and sad reason for telling this little story. You know, there's a, I, I must say that my, my, uh, well, my background in the banana world is not as uh, casual as you might think. And uh, one week. Uh, lo, these many centuries ago. This was in my Neolithic, or, well, actually, it was just going into my Cro-Magnon stage. Uh, my Neanderthal stage was ahead, yet. I'm still in that stage. <laughs> hey, you know, hey, wait a minute. Before we do anything, that just reminded me of something. Uh, I read a scientific article, a piece in one of the science magazines, Bob, recently. And it was by an anthropologist and he said that there are walking around among us in the Western world. He wasn't even dealing with the Eastern world or the Northern world or the Southern world. He was dealing with the Western world. He said that there are walking around among us genuine, he says, in fact, there are probably well over several million walking around up and down Fifth Avenue, uh, up and down Madison Avenue, uh, walking up and down Broad Street in Philadelphia, walking up and down Regent Street in London, there are probably several million throwbacks to the actual Neanderthal man. In other words, there are people who look very much like the Neanderthal man looked in his prime. Now, I'm not kidding. This is what this guy said. He says, and there are a lot more Cro-Magnon men still walking around. Most of them are playing pro football, I'll admit. However... He said that uh, uh, that they are there. They're walking around. Now, that explains a lot to me. You know, I'll never forget working for a guy one time who sat back at his desk. And, you know, when he sat down, no, when he sat down, his arms extended down to his feet. 
He just sit there, you know, and and he always sat hunched over. He looked he looked like a, a hyphen. He, you know, the, the the Neanderthal man never stands up straight, and and you know it was fantastic. He had this giant head, but the strange part about the head was that he only wore a five and an eighth hat. Enormous head, big jaws, the little thing on top, and uh, and he had brows. He had the, his brows hung out over his eyes like porch roofs. Big, you know, great big hairy crags that hung down there. And uh, to be honest with you, friends, he's running a big radio station right now in this town. Doesn't surprise you, you know, when you hear it. <laughs> but nevertheless, oh, you want to hear about my banana? Please bring me a little more banana on there. Yes, we have no bananas. No, we don't have no more bananas. Get out of here, kid, you greasy little crummy pothead. Get out of here. We got no bananas today. No, da, 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 da. Yes, so we have no bananas. That's enough, Robert. Robert. You know, it's like I got plenty of style here today. Robert. Oh, we have no bananas. Uh, well, I'll tell you, though, the banana thing is not no. I am sure that there must be at least 87 million people, kids and ex-kids like me, who dig bananas the absolute most as a fruit. Correct, Bob? You like them? No, I find I find that the that the English people have something to go on with oranges. Yeah, you know, the English people are ape over oranges, I guess, because no oranges grow in England. Well, no, bananas don't grow, but a lot of English people are bananas, you know, so it's a different scene. <laughs> That's all. No, no, but but I don't know what it is. Maybe uh, I, I, you go all over Europe and you find that they, that they make a much bigger thing about oranges in Europe than they do here in America. An orange, for example, is considered a really, uh, a really delicate piece of Epicurean dessert. I mean, that's a big dessert. They bring an orange in Italy, for example, and they hand this orange to you and say, wait, uh, he says, uh, uh, <laughs> he's, you know, he says, uh, uh, this is orange, and he takes it, and he takes this knife, a little silver knife, and he just cuts it all around. And you sit there, and then after, he, the, the trick, of course, of, of uh, peeling an orange in Italy, Italia, is an orange, and he, he cuts it with a silver knife. And the trick in Italy, of course, is to make, is to peel the orange with one cut of the knife, so that it's one long peel, so that you don't break it, you know, nowhere along the line. And so, ultimately, he's peeled his orange, and he looks at you and he says, uh, it's, uh, it's orange and he puts it down and uh, you, you applaud him you say uh, you, you, know, you, you give him a little note of applause and he's the head waiter of course it's not the ordinary waiter who cuts the orange for you and then he takes he takes a, uh, a silver a sprinkling can it's got little holes on the top and over it he sprinkles powdered sugar have you seen them do that in Italy well you haven't been in the Italy I've been in you're strictly in the pasta Italy and he he uh, cuts this thing and then you applaud. And but what you got, and it's when it's all over, is an orange. You know, you got an orange. That's it. Uh, let's face it. It's an orange, and uh, it, it sounds good. But uh, to to a European, an orange is a much bigger thing than it is to an American. We have oranges. Oh, you know, we grow them in Florida. We grow them in in, uh, in uh, California. In fact, my mother even had a little orange tree she grew in the house. You've seen those little tiny things, little oranges. So, you know, well, you're not going to be impressed by something that grows in the front bedroom, really. A camel or something else. You know, you're going to be impressed by things that... Uh, sure, I, I know very few Indiana farmers are impressed by raccoons. 
because they got raccoons coming out of their ears, you know. I mean, you can hardly walk out in the street without seven or eight raccoons grabbing you by the knee, you know, trying to steal your shoelaces and all that kind of stuff. So after all, you're not going to be knocked out by a raccoon. But you show an Indiana farmer an African warthog, and he'll go out of his skull. Now, I'm, I know, I know doggone well that the average guy walking around in the boondocks in Kenya is not going to be knocked out by a warthog. You know, war, get out of the way, a warthog. Boy, what can be worse? A warthog? You are a warthog. How would you like to be named Warthog? Crying out loud, just the idea of being named a wart is bad enough, but a warthog. <laughs> no wonder that animal never makes it and is always mad and digs holes in the ground and grunts and all that. I mean, it's not named Peacock, you know. And so, uh, whatever, whatever it is you see that is, is exotic to you, always gas it. Oh, the English, they go for oranges and you know, oranges. But in, in America, it's the banana that gets people. They love bananas. The banana is a dessert in America. You know, they slice it up and put honey on it, and they bake it and do all kinds of things. A banana, they don't do that in England. A banana, oh, once in a while. Very rare. They, they, they can take... I think one of the reasons why they don't dig bananas so much in England either is they're fantastically expensive. More than oranges. What do you mean? Where do you get your bananas then? From the West Indies. How far are the West Indies from England? They're a little bit further than Land's End, fella. They're further away than Dundee. You get your oranges from Spain. It's about 10 minutes away from you. You do. You get Seville oranges. You get them from Italy. You got, I know where you get them. Come on, don't tell me that. I've been over there. He's trying to fool me there. Where do you get your popsicles from? Hoboken. Where do you get your yoo from? Newark. I know where you get it from. It's all imported over there. You know that you go to Paris... And you order a bottle of Yoo-Hoo in Moxim's, that's roughly like ordering uh, the finest vintage champagne in Needix. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, they pay big money for that. You know, there are some places in the world where a bottle of Coke is, is uh, one of the greatest delicacies in the world, really. A Coca-Cola. I mean, Coca-Cola. You go to certain areas in, in uh, Paraguay, for example, and a bottle of Coke really is, uh, is like the finest Chablis. And they pour Chablis on your head there. Now, you know, I kind of don't care. So, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective. Well, there is, no, there is something about the banana, though, friends. I've been cured of bananas, though. And I'm going to have to tell you a story. This lab will make you kind of queasy, so uh, we'd better just give you a word of warning. So, for the next ten seconds, would you bring on a little banana music there? Now, we're warning all of you people out there who have weak stomachs and weak knees, who cannot face up to the reality of existence, and there are plenty of you. But while this music is playing, we are giving you the $50,000 mystery question. Does she or doesn't she? Only her hairdresser knows. Uh, the clue will not be found in the second car on the third train after 8.15 on the AA line. Bring it up big. Actually, it will be. That's the clue. All right. We're giving you 10 seconds to get out and get out to WPAT where they're playing some nice, soft, Muzak-type music, you know, selections from uh, The Sound of Music played on a harmonica. Right, we're, we're warning you now, so don't write me an angry letter and say, Shepard, you have terrible, terrible rotten things. What did you do? The, yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. And that's just as well. I, one time, one summer, with my kid brother and myself, me, it's the only time I've ever had a job where I worked with my kid brother side by side. And uh, you know how uh, during the summertime when you're 15 or 16, I don't know about you, 
But uh, most kids were looking around for a job. Well, the summer is three months long. You're out for school. And uh, a couple of kids who get a job down at the grocery store, loading the delivery truck. And, you know, that little dough is kind of nice. And the idea of having a job was very exotic and very attractive. And we went down to this place where it was the, it was the Indiana State Employment. Do you ever get a job from, from a state employment company? You know, the Indiana State or New York State? Well, let me give you a little uh, lesson in that. My kid brother and I, he was 14. And uh, I was just over 15, just hit pushing 16. Uh, and in Indiana, you can get a work permit at the age of 14. And so we had just gotten our work permits. We're all excited, see? And so we went down to the Indiana State Employment Service, which had this office. And the two of us walked in. And uh, they had two different departments. They had one for what they called juveniles. And then they had, of course, the adult department, where they were hiring accountants and all that kind of stuff. And so we turned left at the juvenile department. There were a bunch of kids sitting around with their noses running and a couple of kids with black eyes and kids that, you know, they, you know, you know a bunch of just kids looking for jobs. And so we waited hour after hour. Oh, boy, you know. It was my first real experience with bureaucracy. And the walls are painted kind of a, a sick gray-green. You know that, that peculiar bureaucracy color? And they've got steel doors that open and close and little gray men that go back and forth carrying baskets of stuff and tall skinny ladies with flowered dresses and rimless glasses and that smell you know the peculiar smell of of the city hall it doesn't exactly smell like uh disinfectant it doesn't it just smells like old musty records and gray paint and, and uh tile floors and it smells like old ladies and old men and, and piles of paper and rusty paper clips. And it's, that, it's, that, it's the smell of bureaucracy. It's a very special smell. It does not smell like the Army, which is not bureaucracy. People keep talking about the Army. Not at all. Uh, the Army smells sweaty. There's a lot of sweat in the Army. There's no sweat in bureaucracy. No, no. It's like old gray bones. You know that feeling? You've been through that. Oh, anybody who's lived in England has lived in a... And, and you know where bureaucracy reaches its absolute epitome? Oh, Switzerland, you're right. You know it. In fact, in Switzerland, bureaucracy is a major art form. It really is. It's an art form. And, and you'll see one clerk congratulating another clerk on a magnificent ploy to further confuse uh, a citizen who's come to get his meat stamp stamped. There's some idiotic little thing like that. And you'll hear one clerk applauding another clerk for, you know, and, and, and you'll hear the sound of stamps going on. They're constantly stamping thumb stuff in Switzerland. There must be more rubber stamps in Switzerland than all the world combined, with the possible exception of France. With the possible exception, oh, yes, a French bureaucrat even has a special way of walking. They have their special uniforms, you know, and you can hear the sound of... And the soft muttering undertone of of, uh, of the bureaucratic language, uh, where they're always referring to the department. Uh, <laughs> you know, department. Uh, uh, this is uh, this is most irregular. It's irregular. And he has a stamp that says irregular. You know, boom, boom. <laughs> well, me and my kid brother, the first time we're sitting in this this place, see, and we're we're about to experience our first taste of true bureaucracy. Me and, you know, my brother's whimpering a little bit. He's got a little scared. Uh, and 
and they kept calling kids out, and they would call them into this room where they would, uh, they would give them an interview, see, and the kid would come out shaking, you'd see him come out ashen, or he'd come out crying, or, you know, God knows what. And so finally they called Randy and myself in, we're sitting there on the opposite side of the steel desk. There's nothing more forbidding than a gray steel desk with worn spots on it, where you can see the metal. And it's got this black rubberized kind of formica top. And sitting back of it is this gray steel man. And he's been talking to kids now since probably 1901. And they're all one big klutzy juvenile nothing. You know, just, he, just they're, they're numbers and papers. Doesn't even look like this. All right. All right, what kind of work you want? Yeah, that's the way they talk. He's been saying this same thing for years. What kind of work you want? Well, uh, just uh, any kind of job. Do anything. All right, what do you like to do? Do you have any preferences? Any previous experience? No. Any recommendations? No. Any particular talent? No. Any previous training? Second base? No. Second base does not count as training, kid. All right. All right. Okay, take this. Give it to the lady down at the... And, uh... This constant rattling of paper, see? Give it to the lady at the end of the call. At booth two. He's stamping the daylights out of this thing. He's got green ones, blue ones. He's got yellow stamps. Right, he takes this other one. Then he takes a pen out of the hole. You know, goes... Okay, honey. All right, take these down, okay? All right, next, next. Out we go. We've got 927 papers stamped blue, red, green, yellow, purple, orange. We take it down to the lady at the end of the counter there in booth two, and we hand her our papers, and she hands us out each two cards. And each card had a single line written on it. It said, Inland Banana Company. I said, what, what, what is this? She says, take, take those two cards to the Inland Banana Company, and here's the address. I'll write it down for you. You know that scratchy? Yeah. And it's spraying little ink all over, and she's got one of these yellow pens, you know, with the knobs on it. It's got a long, thin, steel, library, post office-type point, you know, the kind of... That's the scratchy world of the bureaucracy. I can't read it, you know, and it's all... Okay. And now we're out on the street, me and my kid brother. Where we go? So we go into the drugstore, and we look in the phone book, and it says, Inland Banana Company. And we go to the street where these people are, and it's down on the docks. We've never been on the docks before. By the river. And there are boats pulled up and barges. And there's a long warehouse. We take our cards into the office, Mark. Personnel. We give them the two cards. And five minutes later, Randy and I, two fantastic banana fans, we love bananas. Randy and I are working in a big warehouse, hanging up bunches of bananas from hooks. Have no idea how we got there. We are both earning a cool 42 cents an hour, hanging up bunches of bananas from hooks. And there's about 10 other kids. And I turned to one kid, we're hanging up the bananas, and I said, hey, would they mind if you take a banana? And the kid turned green. I said, what's the matter with you? He said, I've been here a week. Don't talk about bananas. 
to go ahead, have a banana. They don't care. Eat all you want. Go on. Go on. Well, we started to eat bananas. Me and my kid brother were eating bananas. See, banana after banana. Because it's just like, you know the old, you know the old idea that when people get a job in a candy store, they tell them to eat all the candy they want. And so they go ape for about three days. And then they're sick for the next month and a half. And after that, they can't stand anything to do with candy. And that after that, they become a faithful employee. And all they eat is turnips. Well, let me tell you, for maybe two days, Randy and I put away at least seven pounds of bananas per hour each. It was at the end of the second day that they all started to come up. And I want to tell you, a banana high is like no, it's like no, it's unbelievable. I must have been sick for three days. And after that, when I came back to the banana company to work, and we were only hired on a temporary basis for two weeks, I had become an ex-banana eater. Like all the rest of the kids who were hanging bananas up. And so, we all have to go through the banana stage out there, kids, you'll learn. We all go through it, one way or another, baked, fried, doesn't matter. And then, of course, there was the time that the banana oil truck turned over and exploded right in the middle of town, which is a story I may just tell tomorrow night at the limelight. After that, the banana has another connotation totally. It is no longer a thing that sits next to two balls of ice cream with a little strawberry syrup dripping down on it. It becomes an evil entity of its own. Le banana. La banana. Oh, don't forget now, we'll see you tomorrow night. The limelight, be on hand, friends, and be sure to bring, uh, bring along your first aid kit. It's liable to be a wild one.